Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Okay, well, welcome to Delusional Optimism. I'm your host, Seth Creekmore, and with me is my other host, Dr. B. And we have a guest today, Sean Perry. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. Thank you so much for having me. For sure, for sure. And where are you located these days? I am in Chester, Vermont. Quiet little, quaint, classic New England town. Uh, it's beautiful this time of year. I got to get out on the motorcycle yes. yesterday and nice. see some foliage. So, And uh, our audience can't see, but I feel very <laughs> underdressed right now. I mean, you're in a you're in a suit and everything. I, I feel I'm just in a t-shirt and a beanie. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. If you, if you could uh, describe yourself in three words, what would those three words be? Ooh, wow. I don't think I've been asked that question. Uh, oh, goodness. Yes. Um, okay. Let's see. I would say that I would be described as humorous, <laughs> um, okay. caring, uh, and driven. That's very nice. Okay. And we have you on this podcast for a specific reason. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do and, and that sort of, and the work that you have chosen to do with your life? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm the co-founder, president, and executive director of an organization called We Are Hope. Hope is an acronym. Uh, so we are the letter R. Hope is helping other people every day. So we are helping other people every day, um, and we are a nonprofit that is created on a modality of life coaching, cognitive behavioral techniques, and emotional CPR. What we do is we go into public schools and we support students that are struggling struggling with mental health issues, but we mainly focus mm-hmm. on anxiety because anxiety is the thing that allows us to see everybody because everybody has yeah. it. <laughs> so it, it allows us that door mm-hmm. in to be able to work with as many people as possible. And also keeping in mind anxiety is the thing that holds us all back from everything that we want to do. So if we can teach youth how mm-hmm. to manage and overcome their emotions and their fears, can create a successful uh, society later on. And I think we can also combat addiction uh, and substance misuse down the road and a lot of other maladaptive behaviors. You know, I, I, I do this because, you know, I struggled with anxiety my entire life and it led to some of those maladaptive behaviors and some of those behaviors that were unhealthy. And I know mm-hmm. if I had somebody that I could have talked to and it was normalized to say, hey, like, this really sucks right now. And I feel this way. And I feel like I'm jumping out of my skin and crawling out of my skin all the time. Um, that it, that it might've, it, it yeah. probably would have prevented a lot of the things that I had gone through. So I want to make sure that the kids 
have an opportunity to have supports that they would not typically be able to have. Yeah. So you use the word maladaptive. I love I love this terminology. Can you, um, for those that are not familiar with why you use that term and, and what is that about? Can you just give us a brief explanation of that? Yeah. So I think you know the easiest way to say it is a negative behavior, right? Something that is holding me back from you know being the 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 best version of myself right we call it you know it's like using a coping skill that's gone rogue uh you know something <laughs> right you know where you know you, you might be a kid that that um listens to music to calm yourself um and then the next thing you know you're using that music to avoid everything you might have a beer to kind of calm the nerves the next thing you know you're an alcoholic right so you know these behaviors that were once positive and helping you to cope are now negative behaviors that are literally destroying your life. I mean, that's the, yeah. the easiest way to say yeah. it. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that helps get away from the term of good and bad when it's really just, right. we're just trying, we're just all trying to survive and figure out the best way to live happy and healthy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing is that no one sets out in the morning to do things that are gonna negatively impact them. We honestly believe that we're doing <laughs> right. things that are helping us to avoid feeling this level of discomfort, not recognizing that those things that were once helpful are now a hindrance and are preventing us from being the best version of ourselves. And mm, I think our kids are learning absolutely. this at a really young yeah. age. I think, I, think you're, I think you're spot on and I think it's kind of been like that forever. Now that we're now that we're starting to sort of unpack it in our generation, like now in this time part time zone, right? That we've slowly been making steps in this direction. But I love that you target anxiety or you focus on anxiety because you're absolutely right. Like anxiety is something that we all have. And when anxiety goes rogue we then like have all these right. maladaptive behaviors and which you see but when we have just a little tiny bit of anxiety that's actually stress and it's a good thing because it gets us out of bed in the morning <laughs> so absolutely absolutely there's this range and so being able to talk about that as a you know talk about that to kids like hey anxiety is like a spectrum and at this end, we need a little bit of it, but at this end, it's going to completely inhibit everything. It's going to take over. Absolutely. You know, we talk a lot of, you know, in what we do with our coaches, our coaches talk a lot about good and bad anxiety and understanding that without, you know, we couldn't survive without having anxiety. We need yeah. it. It's, it's, it's there for a reason, our yeah. body, <laughs> right? Our, our, our body, you know, it's, it's, it's the body's natural alarm system to let us know, lets us know that something's mm -hmm. wrong. But there comes a point when that math class isn't as scary as you think it yeah. is, right? Yeah. <laughs> that something yeah. is, you know, something is overacting here. And if you're not going to school because you're scared of that math class, we have an right. issue, right? We we have to we have to talk about that, and we have to talk about what it is that you're going to do to learn how to work through that discomfort because the reality is is that those discomforts are going to continue to creep up in your life time and time again and if you haven't learned how to work through it you'll be living in the basement of your parents house for the rest of your life sure mm. 
I also love that you use this and I've never had, I've never, we've, I don't think we've ever had a guest come on and use substance misuse right out of the gate, which I love because <laughs> it's so, um, you know, we throw around alcoholic, drug addict, you know, these labels that are so negative when really the focus should be on the substance that is being misused to manage how we feel. Well, that's a harm. Re that's a harm reduction thought process, yep. right? Yeah. So, you know, listen, I think we can all, I think we can all agree that having a beer and having a, a whiskey or whatever it is, there's nothing wrong with that. But when it consumes you and you're using it to hide and mask the pain that you're feeling, we have a, we have an yeah, issue, right? Sure. We have mm -hmm. an issue. The other thing you said that was so striking for me was your three, your three things. And I love that because humor driven and caring all completely, they're resilient words, you know, purposefulness driven linked directly to, you know, the resiliency research when we get kids to think about their purpose, then they're moving in that, that's that activated positive direction going way of thinking and then being caring and compassionate you know another way of building resilience in everybody around us and supporting people's resilience mm -hmm. and then last of course but not least my favorite humor you know in some ways a coping strategy for all of us who have struggled with you know, mm -hmm. adversity in our lives or adverse childhood experiences or trauma. Right. But if we can flip the switch from, you know, looking at that experience from a negative lens to kind of a funny positive lens, it actually does so much good for our mental health, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, mm -hmm. you know, this this work, this body of work, this mental health crisis slash pandemic is serious, right? But we have to look at it from a lens of growth and learning and opportunity and, and, and learn to have fun in these moments of discomfort and these moments of crisis, right? A crisis is just that, it's a crisis. It's, it's heart-wrenching, it's, it's uh, emotionally driven, um, it's depressing. It's all of these things. But if we can if, if we can bring some joy and humor into those moments of darkness, right, we can change a person's entire flow from that. And so, you know, mm -hmm. when I work with our kids, when I work with my coaches, when I work with principals and teachers and administrators, I use humor because we have to have fun doing this work. Life shouldn't be so mundane mm -hmm. and, and, and scary and and, and ugly, yeah. right? We have to have fun at this and, and we have to let kids know that there is more to life than your, than your disorder, yeah. right? We have to let parents mm -hmm. know that there's more to life than their child's disorder. We've got to look at situations for what they are, look at kids for who they are and recognize that we don't have to go into crisis just because somebody said some words that you don't understand and they don't understand either. It's like, we got to take wow. a step back here. Mm. Your, your child is just angry and frustrated right now. This, this makes me think of a, of a question of, as you, as you go into certain situations, may, what are some uncommon skills that you've had to develop that might surprise um, listeners or people that a presupposed way of doing things. 
with with these sort of cases? Well, the most uncommon skill that I have is I don't judge anybody. I don't judge a situation, right? So, and that's one thing that we don't do when we go into these situations, right? We, I take, a, so for one, I take away my fear and I take away my judgment. So I can have a kiddo screaming, crying, kicking, yelling, swearing, standing there with a knife, ready to stab somebody and go in and say, hey, what's going on, man? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm. like what are we yeah. doing? Right? What, what's going on right now? What, what, what do you need? And, 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 and I've done this. I, I worked in a, in a boy's home with uh, severe trauma, and they would come at you with, with bats wow. and pitchforks and uh, pickaxes and you name it, and axes. And I'd be like, bro. What, like, what are we doing? You know, and I, and I think for me, it's, it's, a, it's about not judging the situation because you don't know what's going on in someone's mind. You don't know what they're feeling or experiencing in that moment. And the best thing that you can do or that I've learned to do that's uncommon is to be their safety net, to take away my fear and be there for them, not be there for myself, not be there for the audience that's around, be there for that person. And that is something that is uncommon because especially when you get into schools, the thing that you hear is, well, this kid's making the rest of the class feel uncomfortable. You know what? You are so right. But what is their comfortability level? Do you think that they woke up this morning and said, hey, you know what would be a really great idea? I'm gonna go and pop off in class and just see what happens. No, right? There's something that's going on deep inside of them and it's our job and responsibilities as adults in that building and in those rooms to put away our fears and our expectations of what that child should be and what that child should do in that moment and just be present with that child. And so I think that's the uncommon thing that I have um, and that I do and that I try to teach to people that I found is the most beneficial. I have a question about that as you bring up schools and having sure. that type of a response to a child in a school setting. What is the school's initial response to your, that's pretty counter to how schools operate. I mean, and that's pretty counter Absolutely. to how schools operate all the way across the country. Like this is no, yeah. you know, I can't think of a school that that is the primary point of mm -hmm. how we would respond. I completely agree and appreciate that you know, whoa, borrow some of my emotions. Let's disperse this energy and come together right. and figure out like what's going on and how can I be your scaffolding helper through this emotional yep. experience. But we all know, and as in different parts of the country and the world, that this is really not how our educational system works. So what hap what is the response you get when you go into schools with that? message so yeah so a lot of schools they think i'm a little off my rocker right but the difference between me and them is i do this for a living they don't right and and, and what i mean by that is you know this is the field in which i work with this with this level of of crisis they have rules and responsibilities within a school setting, you know, all the laws within the state that have to protect all the kids. And I, and, and I always let them know, like, I get that. I understand that you're going to have to do what your what your protocol is. But what you should do is address each child as a human being. 
treat them literally how you would want to be treated in that moment of crisis. And so I, I am able to get, to, to get the schools to listen. Um, there's always, you know, some people that are just like, oh, I'm not doing that. We're going to go, we're going to go hands on with that kid. We're going to physically manage them. And I just remind them that every time you put your hands on a child, you're just adding to more trauma and let that kind of resonate wow. with them. Yeah. Right. Let that resonate. Just, just, just let that sink in. Right. You're telling me that this child has trauma, has a trauma background that, you know, they're living in poverty. They don't get three meals a day. They eat basically what they're at, you know, what they get at school. They have all this trauma. And then when they when their behavior doesn't line up with the school, your response is to physically manage them. So just a reminder to you, you're adding more trauma to that child's life. Yeah. And that kind of gets people to sit back and, and say, oh, I didn't yeah. I didn't think about it that way. And I said, well, that's the issue is that you're you don't think about it that way. You weren't taught to think about it that way. But that's why I'm here. It's to help you. Yeah. think about it that way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like in a lot of ways what you're doing as you're going into the schools and, and talking to the teachers and, and, and whatever and whoever else is involved is you're training them to put put their own feelings and emotions aside in order to actually see more clearly instead of just trying to address their own discomfort of like this 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 kid is acting out it's causing so much uh uh, uh just just get him away and and so absolutely that that's extremely accurate one of the things that I that I say in every single training I do regardless if it's emotional CPR training whether it's anxiety education and training whether it's uh, creating space for myself training that I've developed and created um, the one thing that I I tell every adult in the building at some point when they work with me is it's not about you it's not about you stop making it about you yeah right mm -hmm. Well, they told me to F off. Okay. It's still yeah. not about you. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. Like, yeah. stop, yeah. stop, stop trying to stop trying to take on this child's emotions because you feel like a failure because your class isn't working the way that you want it to work. It's not about you. That's about you. But this child's behavior is not about you. You didn't create that child. Yeah. You didn't raise that child. <laughs> this, is, this isn't about yeah. you. Yeah. This is about what that chi this child's lived experience is. This is this is what it's about. And the more that you continue to own that child's emotions, the more that you're going to want to continue to quit your job. Exactly. Well, that's what I think wow. is that there's this this disconnect between what we teach teachers about what their job is going to be, and then re the reality of what their job is. And Absolutely. I think we're going into and you know. Delusional optimism this season is really in a lot of ways about generational differences. And I think this is going to be a massive transition in K to 12 education or probably education across the board that right, we're right. going to have to start training our teachers first to be to understand all the things you're saying about themselves because they come right. to the classroom with trauma and then. So they're able to apply those. Yeah, this isn't about me. I don't need to take this personally. This baby is suffering and is just showing me that suffering because he or she threw a desk. You know, that's a yeah, real yeah. that's a real mind shift. 
Well, there's a, I mean, think about this for a second. I said to a teacher, a third grade teacher, I, I walked by the hall and I'd heard some yelling and screaming and so forth and so on. And we were then doing a training a couple days later and that teacher was in my was in my training class. And I said, I'm just curious, at what point, right, did anybody think that it was okay to argue with a third grader? Like, like think about this for a moment, right? You're in your <laughs> 40s, 30s, right? And you're literally arguing with a third grader. And where on any other place other than a school setting would an adult argue with a third grader? Just think about that for a moment. Yeah. Right, it's the only place. Because any any place else, you'd be like, I, I'm not. Why, why would I engage with a with a child, right? To that degree, and it's because the teachers are human, right? They feel discomfort. It's making them feel a certain kind of way, and they have to have power and control in that moment, mm-hmm. right? I want to I I, I want to just shout yeah. out. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned this a moment ago about teachers. You know, this having to be a teacher's you know uh, thing for education as we go on. I just want to shout out Plymouth State University. And the reason that I want to shout them out is because for the last three years, they have called me in to teach anxiety education to their up and coming graduate teachers so that they are prepared for the real world. Mm. Right. So they understand what kids are going through, how they're experiencing anxiety, but most importantly, how they as adults are experiencing anxiety and how their anxiety can manifest to this power and control model within their classroom. It, it was really cool. I was uh, taking my daughter to view colleges. It's one of the colleges that uh, she was gonna, that we went to view. Um, she ended up going off to Fordham, but we viewed that, or we visited that college. And while we were there, there was this group of, it was like a teacher's like club, I guess. And they were talking about things that, you know, that they were doing. And I gave them my card because I thought what they were doing was pretty cool. And ended up calling me uh, six months later, and I've been teaching them every year ever since this club, um, and it's been it's just been really awesome to see young teachers say, "Hey, this is something that we need." Yeah. And I hear a lot. I'm interning in this school. Why can't you be in this school that I'm interning in? Because they need to hear this also. So yeah. you're right, uh, Kristen. This is this is something that's that's huge. Yeah. And it can feel so overwhelming because we have to we need it immediately in the classroom right now at every age at every age grade level and yet in order for it to literally flush down into all the classrooms we have to change the top level we have to change the laws we have to change the uh the the bureaucracy that you know, requires the protocol of whatever it is, three strikes, you're out or pull a card or whatever, you know, all these discipline things that we know don't work, but yet they're still in place everywhere. Well, and I think that, I think, I think we have to, I think we also have to be realistic and understand that there are some children that, that are really struggling in in, in a quote unquote normal school setting. And we have to be able to provide a space and a place that is not punitive for them to go, but a place where they're going to learn how to work through. And that's the issue that I think that we have is there's all these kids being sent to alternative schools and they're all, oh, and I hate this word, behavioral modification yes. schools. Yeah. Like behavioral modification? What? What kind of nonsense is that? 
right? How are you going to modify somebody's behavior? You need to be able to teach them why they're even having that behavior. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's a lot of work. There's a lot of clinical work that goes into that. Yeah. And the clinical work isn't happening in those schools. And that's an issue. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing yeah. is behavioral modification, they grab it because it's fast, it's easy, it does work to solve their problem. It does not work <laughs> right, to right. solve the child's problem or the family or the community and all the things that we really care about, which is we wanna send our children to be educated about the world, which includes themselves, right? Like we, mm -hmm. need, we, need, we want people to be you know, educated. However, we've lost track of this management system of people and we manage them in ways that aren't emotionally focused. And the best way to support people is to start with the inside and work out, not start with the outside and try to hope that we get in. Well, I think, you know, as you're talking, I, I started thinking like, wow, this is a much longer conversation <laughs> because that's really Western culture, right? That's, that's the U.S. That's, that's just what we do yeah. well here, right? We tell everybody what to do. We, we try to make ourselves feel more comfortable. But if you go to other countries um, and, and places around this, around this globe, you'll find that they address, quote unquote, behavioral issues with love, compassion, empathy, Right, they're, they're they're not compiling shame and guilt on these kids for feeling a certain way. I mean, it's the same thing with you know, again, a deeper conversation. But even with psychosis, the way that we've dealt with it here in a Western, yeah. you know, in Western culture, you know, psychosis is 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 uh, dealt with in so many different ways. Sometimes it's even um, it's even looking it's even looked at as enlightenment right. and and allowed for people to grow and thrive in an environment. And so I think. As a whole, in the U.S., we have we have to take a step back and say, "Listen, we have con we've continued this power and control since the conception of time here in the U.S. Since they've colonized this country, it's all about been about power and control. At some point, we have to recognize the human condition and allow people to be human and have flaws yeah. and combat that with with love, compassion, and empathy." Yeah. This is kind of a crazy, ironic uh, conversation to be having. I, so I just arrived on an island called Bornholm. It's owned by, owned by uh, Denmark, and I have family here. And um, one of my, we'll just call her my cousin. My, my cousin uh, was late picking me up because she had she works at a school with kids, but like eighteen to twenty five that mm -hmm. kind of have fallen through the cracks. And she was late picking me up because one of her students uh, was having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And there's, it's kind of an isolated island. So there's not a lot of mental health professionals. None of them are certified mental health professionals. Just they have some training and stuff. But, and, uh, mm -hmm. and this particular student won't get the help that she needs for a very long time because the, the, the waiting line is forever. Mm -hmm. Even though that they are, they are informed, she can't get proper help. And so I, yeah. it's, wow. I guess, speak, Sean, could you speak to that, I guess, of like teachers that, that know that this is a problem and they're doing the best they know how to, but they still feel powerless. Mm -hmm. and, they, and it's just so many students 
needing them to hold yeah. space every day. How, how do yeah, you, yeah. yeah, any words on that? Well, so, you know, that's a, that's a really great question. And I actually just received an email this morning from a teacher that said something I've worked with her for the last couple of years. And she said, Sean, you know, I, I care so much. What do I, what do I do? You know, I take this stuff home with me. Well, for mm-hmm. one, stop taking it home with you, right? Let's, let's start there, right? Two, yeah. <laughs> realize and recognize, realize and recognize that your responsibility to that child is for you to be the best human that you can be in those moments of their discomfort, right? It's not your job to fix anybody. In fact, a lot of us don't want to be fixed. We just want to be heard. We want to be listened to. We want to know that somebody's mm-hmm. there. And so it's interesting, you know, you mentioned, you know, there's not a lot of quote unquote mental health professionals. And I would, I would venture to say that we all are mental health professionals because we all understand the human condition in some way or another. And if we can learn how mm-hmm. to relate what we feel when we feel discomfort, right? And we feel out of control and we can relate that back to somebody else who's feeling that in that moment, then that's what that person needs. And that's why I teach emotional CPR because that's Mm -hmm. exactly what that modality and that practice is. It's about learning how to connect through feelings first. So what am I feeling while you're in crisis? Am I even in a a space to be able to help and support you? And then if I am, how can I connect with with what I'm feeling to what you're feeling, what you're feeling to what I'm feeling, and we can connect on a heart-to-heart level. And I can just be there, be present in that moment with you. And I think for teachers that are feeling out of control and that they have to hold all this space, the first thing that they need to do is start holding space for themselves, right? They need to be able to realize and recognize that they cannot give more than who they are. And their job does not require it, even though they believe that it does. That's their anxiety. That's their stuff that they're bringing into it, saying, I need to do this more and above. Listen, we can only do what we can do. Right? We can only take on what we can take on. And we are allowed to tap out without the rest of our colleagues thinking that we're selfish. Right? It's okay to say, that's too much for me right now. I'm okay. I need to focus on my mental health. And so I think to, to, to answer your question in a, you know, in a, again, in a roundabout, a roundabout way, self-care first and foremost for these teachers, but two, also realizing and recognizing that they don't have to have a master's degree, a doctorate, or any of these other things to be a human being and to support a child who's in crisis. You, you know, most teachers that I know, and I've been a teacher, you know, people do take their work, they take all their people they love home with them and around with them, you know, so much of the time. And we don't often give people permission to stop, back up, take care of themselves before they move forward. And there are so many clinical concepts that can be adapted to all of our everyday lives without needing the level of professional mental health care that so many children in school and adults in the world seem to need because we don't have this this scaffolding layer in between. We don't have the skill set for the middle. Like we have the skill set for, oh, all those kids who just do what they're supposed to do and behave and fall into the, you know, the easy category and we have this you know overwhelming you know response to the kids who are exceptional exceptionally needy in terms of their emotions and their 
whatever's going on with them. But then there's this whole big pool of kids in the middle and people in the middle and they don't, they don't fall into either category. And yes. I think that generationally, like millennials recognize this more and are, are starting to push the envelope a little bit in terms of saying, hey, we probably need to do more. We, we probably need to have a bigger focus on mental health in, in all of our environments, it, not only at school, but at home, right. in our communities. And this is going to kind of tip over the apple cart, you know, it's going right. to topple the apple cart because all of a sudden school isn't school anymore. School is now an emotional experience on a lot of levels, but we need that because we don't have enough clinicians to handle the care. Well, school becomes part of the human condition, right? Because the human condition is, you know, we all have feelings and emotions. And for so long, we've been told that what we feel, not, not that it doesn't matter, but why would you share that with, with someone else, right? I mean, think about this for a second. You know, when someone says, hey, how are you doing today? First thing we say is okay, or I'm fine. We don't even think about actually how we're doing today, right? When someone, I, I was doing a training the other day and I said, the next time somebody says, hey, so how are you today? I want you to pause before you answer and then actually tell them how you're doing today. Yeah, and and they're like, whoa, that I, that just feels super uncomfortable. I was like, but they <laughs> yeah. asked, right? But they asked, so yeah. tell them, right? Like today really sucked, right? I had a flat yeah. tire. My you know my my dog's sick. This is going on, and then we realized that you know the people that you know that don't want to hear it is because of their own selfishness of not wanting to hear someone else's condition. But I tell parents all the time instead of instead of saying how was school today. You know, start asking questions like, how do you feel this morning, right? You know, what did that make, you know, when, when they say, my friends were doing this today, how did that actually make you feel? Get kids connected with what they're feeling and experience. And the same thing for adults. Start asking yourself throughout the day, what am I feeling right now? I'm feeling kind of anxious. Last week, myself personally, I felt like I was going to jump out of my own skin all week long. I was super anxious. I had a lot of stuff going on with my dad. So... Um, it's okay though, right, to have those conversations. A buddy of mine called and said, like, how's it going? I was like, ah, I hope you got a few minutes because I'm gonna tell you, yeah. right? And just being open and honest around those conversations. So yeah. I think school needs to, needs to go into that route, but I think, I think we as a society need to do that. It doesn't make us no. weak. It doesn't make us, you know, I think that's, that's been a big misconception of American culture is that, you know, talking about your feelings makes you weak. You know, I'm gonna eat a steak <laughs> and potatoes and that's it. Right? Like, come on, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it doesn't, because when we're allowed to really tap into our feelings, it doesn't, it doesn't make us weak at all. In fact, it makes yeah. us stronger and much more in control of our lives and our whole person. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So, but we do have these cultural messages that, oh man, if I say, I love you to somebody, then, you know, that's, that's weird, you know, or that's not, right. um, and I'll, I'll use this for you guys. That's not manly, like to say, I, say, yeah. I love you to a son or a kid or, you know, or expressing emotions is one of those things that men actually get hit with. 
I've I've got a I've got a friend who when we talk at the end of the call, he'll say, "All right, man, I love you," and I'll say, "I love you too." And the first time I was getting off the phone, my kids were like, "Who are you talking to?" <laughs> My my wife was like, who who yeah. was that? And I was like, it was Wes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like, they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. It yeah. was Wes. You know, because he's a he's a yeah. yogi. You know, he's a yeah. yoga guy. You know, and he's like gives everybody hugs. But when they heard it, they were like, why is Dad saying I love you? Right? Like what? But I do love him. He's a mm-hmm. great friend. You know, and he would do anything in the world yeah. for me. And, and what I mean by that is. You know, we talked yesterday, you know, out of nowhere. He's like, hey, Sean, I need a moment of your time. Like, I need you to walk me through this situation, you know, and I'll do the same thing for him. And it's okay as men to be able to to be able to say that, articulate that, because I personally think that makes us yeah. stronger as men. Right. So I distinctively remember the first time that I said, like, openly, I love you to my brother, like... You know, growing up, teenager, you know, kids, teenagers, the whole thing. And yeah. you never say you like, I love you to a sibling. And we're only a year apart. Mm-hmm. So even then it's like, uh. but he had, he had moved <laughs> out and he had moved out and gone to college and I hadn't seen him for a while. So we were talking and I said, you know, I love you for the first time. And I don't think I've had a conversation with him and, and I'm 54 ever without yeah. ending our conversation with I love you. And I also think Mm -hmm. to myself sometimes now that if you're in my life and I'm sharing my time and my energy and who I am with you and you like and you want that for me and I want that from you, then the least I can do is I do probably love you and you should know it. You should know it. You know, (laughs) you know, my the first time my father told me he loved me, I'll never forget it. I was actually 27. It's the first time I heard him say it out loud. And we were getting off the phone and I said to him, I said, uh, now mind you at this time, 27, 26, 27, I had already been, um, I was married. Um, I already had three children for three and one on the way, or I had my, had my fourth. I think, I think it was three and one on the way. And it's the first time my father's telling me he loves me because, you know, he's a strong black man that, you know, doesn't say I love you, you know. I don't need to say I love you. You should know it. And so I said to him, as we, I was like, "Would you?" I was like, "What did you just say to me?" And he's like, "I said I love you." And and he's like, "You heard me." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, "Well, what prompted this?" And he goes, "Well, your uncle Willie told me that I need to get out of my own way." And then he started telling my kids I love them, and and he was right. And so since that day, there there hadn't been a conversation that ever ended on the phone with you know without saying I love you. And in my home. All of us, all of my children, I have five mm-hmm. children, all of my children and my wife, uh, we all say I love you all the mm-hmm. time, you know, whether it's texts, whether it's phone calls, whether it's, you know, whatever it is. My sisters, uh, my brother, you know, we say the same thing. All right. Talk to you later. Yeah. Love you. You know, and, and it is part of it is part of who we are. And I think when I was younger and never saying I love you to anybody, I also know that person. And that person wasn't a very nice person, yeah, there you go. <laughs> right? So you know the the, mm. the 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 change in 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 my persona, the change in 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 who I am as a human being. Um, I love you as part of it, you know, and 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 my compassion and and empathy is part of that as well. Mm-hmm. Last last question from me, and then we'll we'll close out here. I I have a rather incomplete thought that I haven't quite uh, <laughs> figured out how I want to 
um, <laughs> define these, but when you hear the word power and strength, how would you differentiate those? Yeah. So I think when I think of power, I think of it's something, um, I think if I think of it as something that someone has more so of, of like, a a group setting, if you will, like an overall mm. power, like an overarching power, right? When I think of strength, I think of that's an individualized um, piece mm. for some, you know, inner, like inner, I think of it as inner strength, um, not physical by any means, but I think of it as like, you know, the, the level of strength that I have within my, my heart and my being and my person, the power that I have to create and control mm. environment and situations and modalities and um, and life itself. So I think of power as this this overarching umbrella, and strength being that inner piece th- that I carry mm. to to make that power possible. And applying that power in adaptive or maladaptive ways. Sure. So hopefully yeah. using that strength in the direction of adaptive power. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that, Absolutely. you know, the strength is the, you know, the strength is the wielding force to, you know, to, to, to that power, mm-hmm. you know, that that's within that power. So for me, you know, that's, I would, I would say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> that's awesome. off the cuff. That's off the cuff. Yeah. too. I, I, I know I threw it at you and I didn't even have an answer. So, uh, <laughs> um, so, so as we're wrapping up here, um, what are, <laughs> What are some ways that uh, people can reach out to you and to your organization and, and get the help that they need? Yeah, so um, one of the things is they can give us a call directly at 802-440-1428. Again, 802-440-1428. Um, they can also email the organization directly at info at org. That's info at org. Or they can always email me directly at Sean, S-E-A-N, at wearehope.org, W-E-R-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G. Nice. Sean, thanks so much. It's been what an incredible conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life present. All content on Delusional Optimism is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of patient-client relationship. A patient-client relationship is only formed through a written contractual agreement. If you need medical or mental health care advice, you should consult your doctor or therapist or go to your nearest hospital.